Welcome everyone to the Vegan Vanguard. It is Mexi, and I am here today with some of the absolute best people on the planet. Uh, some real ve- Vegan Vanguard fan favorites right here. We have Leslie, aka Mad Blender. Welcome, Leslie. Hey. And we have Ash and John from the Horror Vanguard. Hey, to talk- everybody. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about... One of the most culturally impactful texts of our generation. (laughs) The Twilight Saga. Yes. 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 (laughs) And at least three of us are very excited to talk about this. (laughs) Absolutely. John. One of us, maybe not. (laughs) How are you feeling today? John at the Lit Crit Guy. (laughs) <laughs> I I I am feeling feisty. This is gonna I am I am gonna have some fun today. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Alright, so just before we dive in, I wanna shout out the patrons and um if you are unfamiliar with our guests for any reason, I don't see how you could be at this point. So uh Leslie has been on the show several times and has an amazing vegan, anti-capitalist, just intersectional, amazing YouTube channel that you should definitely check out and we'll link in the show notes. And Ash and John have one of the best leftist podcasts out there, The Horror Vanguard. So definitely check that out. And we'll post, you know, follow links Uh, everywhere in the description box as well and we've also done several episodes with them already so you should be familiar but just in case anyway so uh just before we start i want to shout out the new patrons for this month and i'm conscious of the fact that we're actually going to be putting out like we've recorded another podcast already so we're going to be putting these out not in the right order so if you were expecting to hear your name shouted out on this episode just sit tight we're going to show you out in the next episode which is coming soon we've just recorded this kind of strangely um but this week i want to say thank you to e lola's here amber andres padar or andres padar i'm sorry if i'm mispronouncing your name mary monday rikus marina black and colette roberto thank you so much for your generous donations and our content is always free so we rely on the generous donations of our patrons you can sign up at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard or give us a one-time donation on our website veganvanguardpodcast.com so um in the outline for this episode i made a joke at the top saying uh okay we're gonna do the intro and then maybe we'll do some emo vampiric hopeful headlines haha <laughs> um <laughs> And no one else actually came up with any, but I I came up with a couple. I, I, I have two, if that helps. Oh, you do? Oh, How that's amazing. Not? Emo vampire hopeful future headlines? That's like that's like my happy morning mantra. Oh my gosh, that's so good. I'm so good. glad you guys did your homework. Okay. <laughs> so I want to go first because mine are very silly and just like maximum cheesiness so i don't really want to follow yours because i expect that they'll probably be better oh really (laughs) okay go go for it this this will be a test of who's cheesier mine are very cheesy okay 
Say goodbye to young blood transfusions. The secret to immortality <laughs> is true love and vegetarianism. <laughs> oh my god, you win. That's amazing. That's, that is amazing. I love that. <laughs> oh, good, good. I'm glad. Um, and the second one is the last surviving vampiric oligarch found decapitated by a pack of giant wolves. <laughs> yes. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm down for this. I like it. Excellent. Uh, the, the giant wolves are true comrades. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the only true comrades. All right. All right. I've got uh, North American territories return to werewolves as the cold ones are moved to end centuries of colonialist occupation. <laughs> wow. Yes. I love that's that. It's going to went deep. Wow. That's a good one. And then I've got yeah. the, the much worse Tinder replaced by Imprinter, the first dating site for undead monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh that's my, my favorite. Oh, that's that actually rules. amazing. That that's rules. the best. <laughs> oh my god. That's one hundred percent would sign up for imprinter. <laughs> oh my god, I would be on that thing. And then with my oh, luck, yeah. I would get matched with like a, a psychic vampire fetus and it would just ruin my life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um all right, awesome. So that was that was really fun. Yeah, spoilers. As as always, we're gonna be spoiling this. But these movies are what ten years old. So yeah, come on. And who hasn't yeah. seen the saga? I'm, um, so <laughs> I'm very excited to hear Ash's very famous rundowns of these movies. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. So Ash, uh, what what are all these? What what is the saga about? So we're doing we're doing a two part episode, and I've broken I've oh, broken right. the, the summary down into two parts. So you wait, part we should probably one, say part that one now, and then part two over on Horror Vanguard for the for the end of the discussion. Yeah, we didn't even mention that. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe we should just <laughs> clarify. Yeah. So we're actually doing a two part episode. The first part of our discussion will be here on the Vegan Vanguard podcast, and the second part of our discussion will be over on Horror Vanguard podcast. So you're definitely going to have to listen to both components to get get the full breadth of our discussion. We have many different themes that we're going over. It's going to be a whole big shebang. Um, so yes, Ash, please pitch us the the first rundowns for for episode one. It's hard. It's hard to bottle the essence of of these masterpieces <laughs> of literature and screen, but I've I've tried. <clears throat> Famous bard of the industrial workers of the world, Utah Phillips, once sang the line, It's sad, but the telling takes me home. Those of us that travel the world by and by make an uneasy peace with our precarity. Our homes become the telling of tales and the stories of our travels. And sharing them may be difficult, but share them we must, for a home without guests is no such thing. As the grandfather of all vampires is known to have said, Once again, welcome to my house. Come freely. Go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Leave your prejudices where you stand, and enter this text as you would my home. For today we sit down to discuss a story of love, of loss, of the hope that we might find the world a little better tomorrow than we found it today. Welcome to part one of our two-part episode on Twilight. <laughs> yes. Amazing. So good. So, so good. Yeah. What, I, what I love... That's awesome. what I, 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 it, like this is a bit of like horror vanguard like backstory but what i love is that um as we've done the show 
um, the plot recap started out as basically like a goof, uh, and Ash has progressively become more and more completely sincere and like <laughs> deeply, <laughs> deeply felt. Even even as we start talking about like. Uh, you know, killer clowns from outer space. It, like the the plot, the plot, the plot recaps will just be these like beautifully written, eloquent uh, art pieces, and I love them so much. <laughs> Why? Thank I you. love that too. Yeah, that was marvelous. Thank it you was. so much. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll you know we're going to be getting into the plot obviously when we get into the themes, but again, I mean, who hasn't seen these at this point? Um, so. First, I thought we could just all give kind of our, our overall or our first impressions of the film and talk a bit about, you know, what, why on earth are we actually reviewing Twilight as if it's not obvious. For me, I've always found it really interesting, right, that the Twilight movies and, and the books and, and like the, the merchandise, like this has been so incredibly successful. Twilight is just suffused culture. Right. It, it reignited the YA boom. It was at the forefront of like the the kind of like everything has to be a franchise boom. So so much of Twilight has been so impactful, but it critically, it's just kind of been dismissed. People just kind of like brush it aside as that horrible series of awful books and they don't really dig into what's going on in Twilight. And that's always that's always felt me or that's always left me longing for something more, some more discourse. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm glad I'm glad we're here today to finally give this franchise the justice it deserves. So I mean, pretty much I definitely agree with what Ash said. And um even just for young women alone, like before Twilight, the majority of films were targeted towards like a male audience, with mm-hmm. um cinema being largely dominated by slashers, superheroes, car chases, that type of thing. And Twilight really was the first kind of movie to turn this around, attracting audiences that were 80% women while simultaneously breaking box office records at the time. You know, it really ushered in an era of women in lead roles and women-centered franchises were really catapulted, I guess, into the international sphere. And I agree, like, uh, with Ash also, that it really has been uh, just cut to pieces by so many. And I guess... When I first saw Twilight, I was, you know, in my late teens. And for me, what it really did at the time, um, and I guess I didn't really realize it, but um, it really does a good job of tapping into the essence of the teenage experience in a way that really felt authentic and real. And I know, you know, I really felt a deep connection to the story and loved it, even if I couldn't really explain why I loved it so much at the time. And although there are like a lot of problematic elements, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, it explores a lot of really interesting, interesting themes of like powerlessness and free will, um, like being a slave to our desires. Also, the deep insecurity of being a young woman, a young woman trying to navigate through this like terribly confusing uh, world. So, yeah, I love all the different themes, the exploration of good versus evil and uh, the idea that even the worst people have potential for redemption. So I think there's so many good elements that that's my initial thoughts. Hell yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. John? Well. (laughs) John. Okay, okay. I feel like I feel like maybe I have I I I feel like maybe uh there are some sort of preconceived notions of what I might 
think about this. Um, I, <laughs> Perhaps. I, I watched I watched the first one uh, when it first uh, came out in cinemas and watched the rest of the the films for the first time this week because um, uh, I had never seen them. I had never seen them before. And um, I would I w- would actually agree with quite a lot of what has been said. I do think they have been, uh, I think they have been cut to pieces and and denigrated, but for for the wrong reasons. Because um, uh, I think there are I think there are really interesting things about these these films that both uh, both of you have already talked about. But I also think that there are um, that these films are symptomatic of something that is actually really worth talking about, really important to talk about. Um, I really think it's, um, yeah, I'm excited about to, to, to kind of see where this conversation goes, but because I think uh, we need to, Ash is right, we need to move past this kind of reductive binary of, oh, these, these, these films are bad and you should feel bad for liking them because that isn't, that isn't like doesn't help us understand what kind of culture uh was like and what it's going to be like it doesn't help us understand why so many people really do love these films um so yeah that's that's kind of my initial take all right all right yeah that's better than i was expecting (laughs) 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 um but yeah so my first it's always interesting so i mean i think part of the reason why these films have been, you know, greatly dismissed or aggressively dismissed um, is, you know, misogyny or internalized misogyny. So, you know, when I was a young adult, like this didn't come out until I was about like 22, but I didn't see it right away because, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, I guess, I had a lot of internalized misogyny. I also, I, I just thought these these looked ridiculous, like, oh, what a joke, you know, like, who would go see that? How lame. I'm not lame. I'm not one of those lame girls who's into that, you know. This is, yeah, this is just not my cup of tea. So I refused to see them because I just thought, oh, you know, what a complete joke. I'm, I'm so not into this. And then it wasn't until my mid to late 20s where my partner at the time was actually like, you know, you might actually like these films. Like I, I, he went to see them kind of with a friend and he was like, you know, they're actually pretty good. They're, they're shot well. (laughs) Um, You know, the music's pretty good. You might actually enjoy them. And I was like, oh, give me a break, you know, but we sat down and watched them and I was like, oh my God, I love these films. (laughs) (laughs) I just absolutely love them. And I think for me, it was that um, I really, really fell in love with the characters and I really, really connected with yeah, like the emotional kind of currents in the film. Um, like I was a very depressed kid. Um, I was very, like I hated the system without knowing what the system was, but I was very, you know, I was a hopeless romantic because I just thought there's got to be something more. Like there's got to be something more than just staring down the barrel of like 40 years plus years of, you know, hard labor and, you know, contributing to a society that's just destroying the environment and that, you know, I just, I was really kind of down on all of that. But to me, I was like, you know, there's got to be something more. There's got to be like human experience that can like transcend this. And to me, I was like really obsessed with like love, you know, and not in this way that I was sitting there dreaming about like my marriage or anything like that. But I was really, really into like the idea of finding true connection with people um and so like i've been in that like intensely codependent relationship like i've been in that state afterwards where you're just disillusioned depressed and like you feel like 
your soul will never be right again. Like I've been the girl, um, you know, in that relationship with Jacob and trying to navigate those kind of weird feelings. I've been Jacob at a different point in my life. You know, I just felt like I really related to so many of the characters and that, yeah, as Leslie was saying, um, even though there is like a lot of problematic aspects to it, I think it really, yeah, it really kind of captures the, the essence of all of that and really kind of shows like a lot of genuine um, emotion and a lot of genuine things that people go through um, as they're trying to like work all of this out, right? So yeah, and I mean, I liked a lot of the music. I I, li- I thought it was beautiful to watch. Also, um, yes. I really like yeah, I really like um, how they they shot in really close to like you know Kristen Stewart's face and stuff, and her her very like subtle portrayal of of like deep emotion, and same with Charlie and stuff like that. I feel like everyone kind of had this really really subtle portrayal of really deep emotion that was captured by just the way it was shot and the way that they acted it. And I, yeah, I just, I enjoy these films, even though watching them, watching them again now for this, I was like, damn, yeah, there's a lot of problematic stuff, but like, (laughs) but God damn it. I still love these. (laughs) Yeah. That was really, really well said. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. All right. So, um, moving on to perhaps what is the elephant in the room when we talk about twilight, (laughs) it's the feminist critique. So actually, I know that, um, I don't know if anyone's watched this, but Lindsay Ellis, she, I saw that she has a video called, you know, Dear Stephanie Mayer, like, no, or like, I'm sorry, or something like that. <laughs> and I I didn't watch it because I knew it was going to be like a scathing critique that I just wasn't pre- prepared for. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about like feminist critique of this film. So um, I'm wondering what we think about I guess those various critiques and uh, in what ways do we either affirm or push back on them? Ash. (laughs) (laughs) I should just, I should just get used to like jumping in front of things. Um, Yeah. So uh, I I think that there's a lot to discuss here. I I haven't seen uh, that video by Lindsay Ellis either. Um, Can I just say it's actually, just let me jump in. I, I watched it. It's actually an apology to Stephanie Meyer that she judged her too harshly. Oh then. really? Yeah, okay, perfect. Yeah, so she actually. Oh well, now I want. Now I want to watch it. Yeah, go watch it. It's good. I thought it was <laughs> <Okay>. really good. <laughs> but that's it. Go ahead, Ash. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think that actually makes a really, a really good like, like segue into the point I was going to make because we can. Um, I, I think I think the obvious critiques of Twilight are are to discuss about or to discuss the ways in which the text fails. Uh, uh, I guess, society from a feminist standpoint, right? We can talk about codependency. Mm. We can talk about the horrible things that Jacob does to Bella and that Edward is also oh. responsible for. Um, but I, th- I think that, like, that's not complete. That's not a holistic analysis of this text, right? No text, or I should say at least very few texts, can be boiled down so simply. And inside of the text of Twilight, there's also a lot of, like, I don't want to say like pro-feminist because that's also overly simplifies, but there's a lot of things that I, I find to be kind of powerful, right? Like like when we look at who Bella Swan is in 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 the text, like sure, you know, like Kristen Stewart's very attractive, right? But like the movie doesn't fetishize her; it does it doesn't like focalize her with a male gaze, you know? Like we don't we don't get the shots that we would get in other vampire movies of her like bending over the hood of a car or something ridiculous like that. 
Mm-hmm. Like, and she's not particularly smart. She's not particularly graceful. It's not like she's an amazing singer who's just insecure. Her personality is, I think, intentionally very diaphanous, right? She doesn't have any great expectations to live up to. And when you approach her, that that makes her a very open character to kind of get into the space of. And then when you combine that with the fact mm-hmm. that, like, she's she's like the agential character throughout this franchise she's the one who's constantly pushing boundaries trying to make decisions trying to move things forward even if that takes her to places that we could call quote-unquote problematic i still think that there is something redemptive in this text that gives bella all the agency even though the text often fumbles with what it does with that agency yeah i think there's something like I've actually, a couple of the articles I read actually criticized that part of the movie, or, or sorry, criticized the characters for not being um, anything special, Bella in particular, as being so ordinary and criticized that as a fault. See, but, but I see it as a pot as, as really interesting because then, like you said, Ash, it, it does, because, that, and that's what I think what Mexi was saying, that's what I found yeah. so interesting about the movie is that I could absolutely jump into Bella's shoes and identify with everything that she was going through. Like Mexi said, I've been in that position. I've been so depressed I couldn't get out of bed over a guy and uh, over a breakup. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been in those spaces. And so I actually think that's, that's, uh, a really interesting part of the story and there's something really uh different i think it, while obviously she's sort of reckless and erratic at times um there's something like a bit more even mature about her or you know while her high school friends are interested in popularity she's interested in like examining herself and her world and and kind of stepping into the the unknown she's trying to make her life worth living or searching yeah. for a way like that's another thing that 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 i really went through uh one of the biggest <laughs> my biggest things growing up is i always felt this sort of uh sense of purposelessness like i didn't know what my Mm -hmm. existence was about I was always trying to find meaning and so I could totally relate to her not fitting in anywhere kind of trying to navigate through these spaces and um and and figure out you know where she wants to go in life and and searching for a way to kind of make her life meaningful and so she does she immerses herself in these relationships and and so yeah we can talk about um you know kind of the the details of you know edward watching her sleep and uh, <laughs> like <laughs> you know yeah. uh her him like trying to like buckle her seatbelt for her and just you know the uh, watching her following her stalking her like yeah. all very like hashtag problematic not... yeah yes <laughs> yeah. yes 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 um but then there's also something really uh what's the word i don't know uh engaging and and relatable about just that that true love and willing to like be loyal and committed in the face of like all adversity and so there is there is a really uh message that i like in there too so anyways that that's that's it yeah. for now. <laughs> <laughs> I I I want to I want to I want to kind of de- defend the or rather a, defend a a critique of the film because I think it, I honestly I think you're right that a lot of the kind of like pop feminist critique of this is 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 not very good to be honest it isn't a very good argument against the film because it doesn't kind of historicize the relationship between the two of them right historically speaking this is not this is not in any way new or in any way radical it's a continuation of some really really well established and very culturally widespread tropes of like 
um, uh, of courtship narratives. Um, oh yeah, and which so I, I think it's I think it's really odd to suddenly go well. Twi- Twilight, just Twilight, is uh, is kind of terrible. The kind of the area that I find interesting is that like for uh, a kind of erotic gothic romance, this is one like painfully. Uh, heteronormative and two like surprisingly sexless like (laughs) like i i mean i you know this is you know the the kind of the 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 connection here is is about desire right and so for for a long time desire is actually one of the biggest problems that the two of them have to kind of grapple with um you know this this idea of no sex before marriage which links into its its religious and political ideas which we can get onto later of course but i think those are those are two areas which i do think the the kind of feminist critique is really prevalent like this is this is very very like uh rigidly heteronormative in in its relationships even when it gets into the 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 possibility of a polyamorous uh triad and it's 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 like there doesn't seem to be any kind of like yeah for for a really sexy series of films that it's it's as i said surprisingly sexless um but in ter- in terms of the relationship between them like this isn't anything new this is this is um you know exactly what huge swathes of romance writing and romance uh, cultural storytelling has has kind of picked up on um and i really like i really like lindsay's video on this as well and she makes the point that you know it started as kind of like uh, a romance story for your friends, and if that is what you're into, you know, fine. Like it's an incredibly it's an incredibly common romantic scenario of being rescued by somebody powerful and someone who is completely devoted to you. So I I honestly think a, a lot of the kind of um, you know oh it's so weird and so like it makes it makes Twilight like kind of unique and uniquely problematic and i think the ways in which that there are problematic elements in it is reflective of broader kind of cultural and historical trends about how we talk about that kind of uh, heteronormative romance yeah those are really really great points i i have written down here under this section like heteronormative also <laughs> um <laughs> and i i think we're gonna talk a bit more about like the relationships in the film and the idea of like polyamory and like uh other relationships uh, that are represented in the film. But yeah, I, I think that's, that's all really well said. Um, and I mean, just as an aside, um, like it is quite a sexless, well, I mean, th- yeah, at the end, obviously, but um, it is quite sexless, I guess, up for the, for most of it, but I still think it's like incredibly sexy. And I think yes. that it, it it might also be because um, I, people have said like this isn't really a thing, like being demisexual isn't really a thing. But I identify with that idea of like, for me, like the sexiest thing is like being incredibly romantically interested in somebody. And like, that's really sexy. And so I think like, even like the, the way that it's drawn out and like the waiting and like the fact that Bella like wants to, but like, it's like, oh, we can't. And like, even like their kissing i find is just like really sensual and like sexy to me and for me it was like a big contrast because you know when i was in high school and everything like i honestly like there were so many movies that i just couldn't stand right like so that was the era of like american pie and like all this stuff that that were (laughs) you know it's like all these movies that were like hyper hyper sexual but like just like violently from the male gaze and 
I had a really hard time even like enjoying, right? But but those are the movies that were popular, but like I would go and watch them even just like regular films, like I would go and watch them and be like, I'm actually really upset, like leaving this because I would feel the whole time like, wow, that was really like male gazy, but nobody would really notice that. Um, and so when I was watching Twilight, I was just really like, wow, like, and not to say that this is like female gaze or anything like that's super essentialist, but it, it just didn't feel that way. So I appreciate Ash, what you were saying that, you know, yeah, it, it was just about her as a person and not her as like a sexual object, but it was still like an incredibly sexy story. And I I still think that in it, she was very like attractive and charming and sexy, but it was just this different way. And I just really appreciated that. Um, and I relate to what you were saying, um, Leslie, about also like, yeah, when I was in high school, like I would show up like in my pajamas and whatever, because I was like, I don't. I just didn't relate to like the whole, yeah, like I want to be a cheerleader and I want to date a football player and I want to like do, you know, I just, I wasn't, I couldn't relate. I, and I found everything to be just like feel really like vapid and like I, I, it just, I found it hard to like connect with people. And so like I do really, um, yeah, appreciate how that was shown too. But anyway, back to the, the feminist critique. Yeah. So when I was watching this again now, um, a lot of things that I thought were like super hot, I'm like, well, I guess that is problematic. So yeah, like him like following her. Um, and then, you know, him at dinner being like, I just feel really protective of you. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I'm like, oh, I guess that's like a bit creepy. But I remember when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh, that's like so hot. Right. And so I think like even uh, I think that, you know, even though like I can identify now, like all of these things are like hashtag problematic. I think there's always like kind of the flip side of them, too, where it's like, yeah, that is problematic. And like you shouldn't that that shouldn't happen. But like I can understand kind of like the the longing for someone to feel like your life and your well-being matters so much to them that like they want to protect you and not in like a not in like a a way that they're like dominating you kind of thing but in this kind of like quiet like I was just there in case you needed me, but if I, if you don't, it's fine. I'll leave. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so like it's it's like yeah, it is all problematic. But then underneath it, it's like I can also understand like where that desire comes from, and like I've obviously like felt that in my life as well. So um, I don't know what I'm saying here, really, but just that like um, I guess that's why I, I enjoy it despite the problematic stuff because i still think like there is something underlying that like connects to like real human experience um and then lastly i'll just say that yeah i, I agree with kind of the idea of like bella as um being agential and actually big joel made a video about this like uh, a surprising defense of twilight uh where he, <laughs> he he kind of made the same argument that like actually the whole time like bella really knows what she wants and she's kind of like an old soul and she um yeah she like she's very when she just makes up her mind like that's it and she's, she doesn't really waver from that and then like it kind of all works out for her <laughs> i think what's um, really interesting about the the agency argument is <clears throat> in a way this is a really this is a like maybe one of the oldest like tropes of gothic romance so like if you go back to like late uh late 18th century novels like Anne Radcliffe heroines were were um agential and were kind of self-actualized and like within the confines of the the kind of domestic space 
they were the ones who kind of took control. They're the ones who kind of uncovered what the secret was, even though like there could have been ghosts and there were all kinds of creepy noises happening in the in this deserted castle they've been imprisoned in. But I think the important point is that um, is to kind of question what we actually mean by agency. It's agency within a very rigidly and uh, culturally mandated set of rules and binaries that she's allowed to operate in. Right. Yes, everything works. Everything works out and she gets exactly what she wants. But what she wants is in no way troubling to the kind of presumed uh, viewer. You know, what she wants is she wants she wants marriage, material success, uh, prosperity with somebody who's devoted to her and a, and a family. And but those wants are very kind of, you know, they exist only within a very kind of narrow frame. There is no space for desires which go outside of that in fact desire itself in this film comes off as in these films actually comes off as being something like profoundly dangerous and something that actually has to be controlled through institute through institutions like the family unit or or through uh, uh the sacrament of marriage that is going to kind of channel it in the correct direction so agent agential yes but only agential up to a certain point I, I really like that, and I really I really think that one the the one thing that this kind of critique does for me for this film is is like the Twilight is Twilight and the first Transformers movie ironically enough are some of my favorite texts to to discuss the 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 truly complicated nature of critiquing art right Twilight is is pulling us and pushing us backwards and forwards through these critiques. And it's 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 just effectively ringing us through both sides of a lot of arguments simultaneously, and I think the sex and sexuality is a is a good example of that, right? Because I think John, you're completely correct. Like this this franchise is virtually sexless up until the very end, but the entire every every step of every scene is just outstandingly erotic and just soaking with sexual energy right we can look at we can look at um <laughs> we can look at when um so so uh like the first one of the first problematic things about edward right is he like uh, appears in bella's room very vampire like he just kind of appears there and watches her sleep and in like of yeah it's, it's deeply troubling because that's a that's like an 18 year old boy watching a 16 year old girl sleep that, that is that's nightmare fuel right there but what we also have going on there is we have these two constantly pressing against their boundaries. We have these two constantly testing each other's personal spaces, constantly exploring deeper into each other. And there's something deeply erotic about that. As I want to do, I read a lot of sexual energy in film through the lens of kink because it's kind of what I'm a little familiar with. And like you, you see those relationships playing out with Bella and Edward in this text, and that doesn't negate the problematic elements. It exists simultaneously with them, right? So, so I, I don't think um, myself, or I don't think anyone here, or at least not until we get into the Volturi. When we get into the Volturi, everything changes for me. But up until this point, <laughs> I, I wouldn't argue for Twilight as a like. Uh, uh, liberatory example of of a freed feminine soul or something, but I would suggest that like we have simultaneously existing in this text things that are deeply troubling and things that are also deeply liberating, and that is also a core component to the historical Gothic. Right? We can go all the way back to Castle of Otranto 
and and the beginning of those tropes where where women were agential, yes, but also trapped in catacombs and basements and dungeons. And I, I think that that you're absolutely right that that still plays in Twilight. Yeah, I think those are really really great points. Um, do we want to talk a bit more about just I guess the relationships and like the idea of codependency and polyamory and 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 things now that might flow well? Sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, definitely like when I was obviously this time when I was watching it, I was more aware of like you know all my polyamorous babes would be like, um, what's what's the problem? Like date both Edward and. <laughs> um geez, what is jake i was like jacob. oh my god what's his yeah. name jacob uh so yeah i mean obviously this is super heteronormative and then you also have like every vampire seems to have this forever mate it's kind of like whenever you get into whenever you're with someone it's like okay this is your forever mate um and then you only separate really if that person dies and then even then you don't like move on you avenge your mate's death, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and and you pine over them forever. So yeah, I, I mean, obviously, there's you know the relationships are, are super codependent. Um, so it's yeah, it's not the most healthy portrayal, I guess, of uh, relationships and like relationship possibilities. Clearly, that's like a very obvious critique that one can make, but. I mean, again, I, I, st- I still personally like see myself in, in a lot of this, even a lot of my wants, right? Because it's just like, okay, I, you know, I'm agential, I feel, but you know, I'm still like a cis straight, like monogamous woman, right? And it's like, I know that a lot of that has to do with my conditioning under this broader system that kind of traps me or like in, infects or, uh, you know, influences my desires and the way that I think about love and the way that I think about sex and sexuality and things like that or the way that I feel about it and so I just think it's it's still like a really great I guess exploration of like a real human experience because it's just like I mean we're, we're all those people like we're all agential to a point like we're all you know we all we've all um internalized the various like discourses and things that we were supposed to internalize and you know certain people obviously like you can push back on those right and you can I- explore them but I think a lot of our desires are still coming from this broader system that we don't have as much control over as we'd like to think, right? I mean, there's a lot of unlearning. We can try and like decolonize our brain as much as possible. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just something real there about, I, I guess, about like love and to what extent we are agential in our desires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I, I, uh, I oh, uh, go, go on someone who's not me. No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> Uh, John, John, I heard you uh, make an utterance that suggested further speech. <laughs> no, 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 Ash, you run with this. You oh, run with it. You thanks. do it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really like I really like what you're saying, right? Like, I, I really like how we're, we're complicating the text here to, to use kind of like a tired academic phrase. Because <clears throat> for me, it's always really dissatisfying to dismiss a text as being X or Y, you know, when it's much more fun to see how these things intermix and play with each other. And I know I've, I've kind of like, oh, this will be my last time I invoke this because I've been harping on it the whole episode. But when we, when we talk about like the weird sexualities and the weird relationship dynamics in inside of the Twilight, you know, film series, <clears throat> you you have a lot of weird things existing simultaneously because like uh you know stephanie meyer is a mormon this this text and we'll we'll get into we'll get into more of this later but like this text reflects 
her uh, very strict religious worldview, right? I think John's point is absolutely correct that the the grand framework of this text is imprisoned in the silo of this uh, strict religious heteronormative discourse. Yes, but that doesn't mean the experience of the audience is imprisoned in that same silo, right? So you can have relationships with this text that defy the internal structure of the text, right? So you've got like the, oh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but there are so many good examples. I think like, you know, like the classic one is like, we could look at the, the you know, like bog standard homosocial triangle between Bella, Jacob, and Edward, right? Jacob mm. and Edward clearly have unresolved emotional connections with each other and they they play those out through Bella, right? You know, and it's it's simultaneously this incredibly heteronormative two men fighting each other over, over the uh, affections and physical attention of a woman, but it's also these two men coming to to terms with their weird relationship to each other, right? We get the scene, I think it's before the fight with the Volturi, or it might be the fight with the newborn vampire gang. I don't remember which. It was one of the big battles. Oh, God. I guess I just sound like such a nerd. <laughs> Actually, and then if we look at the film Aurelian, we find out that Bella was really... Um, no, but so, like, actually, it was right before the newborn army... Thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> I defer. I defer to you, my better in all uh, Twilight lore. <laughs> but um, you know, we we get we get that scene where Bella is is curled up with Jacob because, as we all know, werewolves run at a higher temperature, and vampires are ice cold. So Bella's they're out camping uh, uh, to evade the battle, and Bella's freezing to death, and so they kind of like reluctantly reach this agreement where she's going to fall asleep in Jacob's arms. And like, you know, uh, the entire time we, we get the impression that Jacob is having some like sexual thoughts because Edward keeps referencing uh, Jacob keeping his thoughts to himself or they might even be romantic thoughts about how much he would like that moment to last or something. But like at the end of that scene, we get, you know, Edward kind of like coming to the conclusion that like he'll be happy as long as Bella's happy. And if Bella's happy with Jacob, then Edward, you know, he might be a little scorned, but he'll be happy with it. And you have you have in that moment, I think, some something of a, a straining against the heteronormative bounds that the film is trapped in, especially when you see how much this text radiates with like a, a queer audience and how much like fiction has been adopted from that and how much like Twilight interestingly intersected like the rise of kind of like emo bisexuality as an identity in and of itself. L it, Leslie, I have some <laughs> thoughts. I have some thoughts that I would like to. Uh, 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 Ash, is it cool if I if I quote our problematic fave for a moment? Oh, <laughs> oh, if it's the one I think you're going to quote, please. So, <laughs> I yes, am. Oh I love man, it. this is a weird moment. <laughs> I'm going to quote Slavo Zizek. Yeah, what? <laughs> talking like because you because if we're talking about desire, right? So, um. Zizek says that desire's raison d'etre is not to realize its goal to find full satisfaction, but to reproduce itself as desire, which it sort of explains how these films kind of function as romance texts and goes some way to kind of talking about, to, to kind of explaining why it's only when we get to marriage that the films can actually end because then you've got the consummation of desire uh, and we're sort of done really psychologically. But like, as Zizek puts it, like we don't really want what we say that we want. He, use, he uses the classic um, 
uh, male chauvinist fantasy of you're someone who's married, you're you're having an affair, and you say, "Oh, if only my partner, uh, not that I would, not that I would kill them, but only, if only they would disappear, because then I could be with the person who makes me truly happy." And usually, Zizek points out that what happens is, uh, if if the partner leaves, then the person that they were having an affair with leaves anyway. Because it isn't really about getting what you want. It's about wanting to be wanting something. And I think I think that's that's maybe an interesting way of thinking about the desire here and about why any kind of uh, arrangement between the three of them, which seems like it could have been worked out with very few practical problems, uh, but that's just me, um, is important. You know, uh, they can, you know, the, the time management shouldn't be an issue. They're immortal. I mean, like, <laughs> but, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying, but that, but that, that point about desire that we don't really want what we say we want, that we actually want to be wanting. We want the desire itself, not the object. What, what mm-hmm. uh, Zizek and Lacan would call the objet d'art. Um, we don't really want that. We want the wanting. So that explains that by the by the time we actually kind of have desire safely channeled into the political and religious institution of sacramental marriage, we can basically go, okay, well we've wrapped up the story. But at the same time, we still keep the the the, the kind of uh, the third point. We still keep Jacob around because now that can be grafted into a sort of divinely sanctioned family unit. So it isn't any more, there isn't any more kind of tension of desire, but we can, <laughs> we still don't have to get rid of him entirely. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe I just... I that was amazing. Zizek talking about Twilight. <laughs> this has been a weird day. I'm, I'm really, I'm so happy you brought up my yeah. favorite humanoid raccoon. Because I, the entire time I watch Twilight, the the thing that's kind of bouncing around my head, like like the ball in a game of pong, is is the probably one of Zizek's most famous lines, and that's I am already eating from the trash can all the time. You know, Twilight Twilight is kind of like the epitome of low culture. Like like it is dismissed and reviled by by everyone like nobody i shouldn't say nobody because there are three nobodies here who who would disagree with that but like almost no one likes this (laughs) stuff and somehow it's like like we like i think leslie you mentioned at the top of the episode but like it shattered box office records it became wildly popular it fundamentally shifted our media landscape and yet for some reason all of these critics are, are unable to find things to appreciate and i think that in the spirit of zizek we we reread and we reinterpret the film um, yeah, that that quote from Zizek is exactly why I think these films are, are uh, both enormously popular and also n- not uh, good. Um, <laughs> but but like, and I also don't necessarily agree. I think I think the point is not that these films are not popular. It's the point that it's a, to make it a more kind of Zizek point. These these films are popular even though people won't admit to liking them. They, they don't admit their desire, right? But the films themselves are enormously popular. You know, you can't say that they're, they're not popular. What's not popular is to admit that you actually enjoy them, which is... Yes, which is why I didn't even watch them until like a few years ago, because <laughs> I was like, how, how embarrassing for me. Exactly. But, um, but you know, I'm, I want to come back to that quote about the, the trash can of ideology, because I think that is something that 
even applies to all of us who come into contact with these films, however we feel about them. The whole like people uh, uh, not being able to fulfill their desire with Twilight, I think is partially true, right? I, I think like, because when I, when I first encountered Twilight as a text, right? Like, like I, I grew up, you know, thinking I was heterosexual. I grew up, you know, with, with all of these traditional dictates of masculinity, right? And like to quote Propagandi, you know, you can either uh, swim for shore or drown when it comes to growing up as a man inside the patriarchy. And like as as part of that, like, you know, you're, you know, part of part of the like, hey, you're being gendered as a man package is hating Twilight. <laughs> like that's that's on like, I think, page three of the pamphlet we're handed when we're born. But like, I, I, I think part part of what we're also dealing with here is that like, there were massive, massive hordes of people who unapologetically loved Twilight for the entirety of its existence, right? And we can't, we can't. Uh, I, I don't think, I don't think it's fair to write them into a group of people who are like having this Zizekian relationship with desire played through Twilight, because the object of their desire is this horribly sappy gothic romance that they are just like sucking down like candy, you know. And that that constituted, I, I would say, a significant portion of the people who went to see these films, right? Because I remember all of the ridicule was aimed at. It wasn't it, the ridicule wasn't aimed at the people who were making snarky comments about how Twilight was bad, but secretly watching it. Like the ridicule wasn't about secret Twilight fans. It was about the soccer moms who were lining up in droves to go see this film, and it was about the you know, little teeny bopper girls who were like pining over the the beautiful relationship that they're seeing on screen so i think i think you know this misogyny almost even though it's a simpler answer is a more direct one i i absolutely think you're right and if i was i think you know the 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 kind of true fans the ones who who are unabashed in their love for it are are the ones being honest about it um so I I don't I don't disagree with you there. I I absolutely think that's a part of it, and I think it's important not to minimize uh, the extent to which you know we exist in a culture that will systemically shame particularly particularly women and particularly young women for the things that they enjoy and that they love. Met met, met a comment, but I love how that when you and I disagree, we just wind up agreeing, but in better ways. <laughs> 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 that's what disagree- that's what disagreement is for. That's what disagreement is for. And so the, yeah. the best friendships are dialectic friendships. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I also have written down here like the incest vibes. Um, yes. Because... I should have said yes so enthusiastically. <laughs> yes, yes, the incest. I'm going to go delete all um, my social media now. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, you have the Cullens who are this like adoptive parent slash matchmaker duo so you have like step brothers and sisters or whatever just adopted brothers and sisters dating one another and maybe i don't know if they're married or not but um they're you know lifelong mates but they refer to everybody like they it's weird because they refer to like edward will refer to uh jasper and um emmett as his brothers but you know, I don't think that Alice would refer to Jasper as her brother, but she refers to Emmett and Edward as brothers. So anyway, I mean, that's just the whole thing. And then obviously, um, Jacob, I mean, it's not. <laughs> Thank you for being the one to jump in to describe yes. that. <laughs> yeah, it, like, I don't know. I guess it's like not quite incest, but it's like 
highly inappropriate, but it's kind of played off as like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Like he imprinted and it's not what you think it is. And he's just going to be like a brother to her for this whole time. So yeah. So we have Jacob like oh, imprinting God. on this un- fetus. Un- until he gives a pre-chain <laughs> promise ring as a Christmas gift. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yes. And we yeah, all know yeah. what the end, what the end goal is. Like, oh no, yeah, we, we, gonna, we see the scene. So, we see, in the, in the final right, montage. So yeah. It, ah, yeah. 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 I think. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I lo- I love the idea that people go. Uh, it's not what you think. No, it's it exactly <laughs> what you think. It's exactly. It's exactly what you think it is. We we had we had a little section that was cut out, but like I I described that as like. You're you're pitching a movie where a, where a werewolf falls in love with a half vampire psychic fetus, and like amazing Cronenberg energy, like that is just absolutely fantastically weird. <laughs> the best part is, um, I read Stephanie Meyer trying to, uh, she was oh, doing God. an interview, yeah, and trying to describe uh, how it's okay because at some point Jacob will. Well, he'll stop aging, so he'll be like 19 forever. And then, or is that how old he is? However old he is. And then Renesmee will just catch up. So they'll both be the same age. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that works, but apparently that's how she was describing it to make it, you know, okay. <laughs> well, that's how it apparently works with Edward. Like, a, like Edward's actually like 120 yeah. and it Bella's just feels 16, better. right? Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 The, the age gap between Edward and Bella is much more creepy <laughs> yeah, than between a psychic fetus and a werewolf. <laughs> how do we weigh it's the sins he's of like, this? This is weird. <laughs> Well, he's like basically like grooming her ever since she's a child yes. to be like, you you will be mine. Like, right. you know, um, and it's like, well, does she have like because she's not the one who imprinted Jacob imprinted. So does she have any um, say over whether she's going to be forever like in no. love with this man? Right. Anyway. So, yeah. Anyone else want to comment on the incest vibes? I know go- uh, Ash was saying it's pretty goth. Do I ever? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I literally have 1764 tattooed on my hands, which is the publication date of the Castle of Otranto. And, and it's, it's you know, wow. widely cited as, you know, the quote unquote first gothic uh, novel. Although, like, obviously we can trouble the definition of the first anything. But mm-hmm. it's, it's where a lot of the tropes solidify. And one, one of the tropes of the gothic that people always, like, brush under the rug because it's one of the most awkward tropes is pseudo incest, right? The Gothic yep. is full of like, like the Castle of Otranto has uh, the father of the groom attempting, uh, the groom dies and the father of the groom attempts to marry the woman who would have been the bride. So uh, it's effectively his, uh, would have been his daughter-in-law, would have been his daughter. It's a pseudo incest vibe going on. And then throughout the Gothic, you've got a lot of pseudo incest, right? You've got a lot of exploration of the taboo, you know? And and uh, Twilight is more properly read in in that context, you know, it it exists within this tradition of like gothic incest taboo. I think I think Ash is right about that, and I think it's it's given where in the story this emerges. Right, it emerges when we're past the point of the potential transgression of uh, Bella and Edward. So we need a way. We need a way of getting back into some kind of you know now that we've we've got everybody we've got the we've got our protagonists in a uh, in a sanctioned marriage so 
all of the sex they're going to be having for the rest of time is completely okay. We need a way of kind of putting some uh, element of transgressive sexuality back into it, which is why it goes to this. Because it's a really old-fashioned gothic romance, like, I think, at its core. So it's not a surprise that it goes to, like, a really historically uh, repeated uh, trope, which is, you know, this this fear of incestuous desire. As, as just as a way of kind of like spicing up the ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> but 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 even even though it is it is done in maybe the most kind of like it's one of the parts of of watching this where I was like okay this this is this is this is just not good. Um, <laughs> it, like it's it's well it's well within the the gothic tradition. It's a long-standing concern of like gothic writing since since like ash pointed out since since the the genre the form was kind of like instantiated so this is not anything that like gothicists have, have seen this kind of thing before and it's done for the same reasons that it was used back in the 1760s because there needs to be a way of kind of when you've sort of seen the 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 the, the when you've got rid of that kind of transgressive element of will they won't they you need a way of adding in some a new transgressive element that both attracts and repulses um, an audience. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, like whether or not Stephanie Meyer was like consciously doing that or not, um, I'm not sure. I feel like it, it felt just kind of really like she needed a way to like wrap things up and she needed a reason why yeah, for sure. like she 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 needed a reason why Jacob was so obsessed with um Bella but now he can't be obsessed with her anymore because she's married um <laughs> you know what i mean and like like we've been trying we've been made to feel bad for Jake this entire time even though i as we'll talk about when we talk about masculinities like he's been quite toxic <laughs> Bit, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. the entire time um, but we're made to feel bad for him so it's like alright let's just tie up these loose ends like this will make sense so that now Jacob has someone too we don't have to feel bad for him it makes sense that like now he doesn't have to now he can't you know long after Bella it's all good yeah it just kind of felt like a really quick thing to be like oh this this will work but it, it was just so awkward yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think there's some really interesting portrayals of, of masculinities in the film. And um, I think many of us, uh, at least three of us, um, really love Charlie. The dad. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I'll say right off the bat that he is a cop. So that's like, you know, really problematic. In this universe, the only thing that he does that's really copy is... Uh, like when this quote-unquote animal is terrorizing the town, he organizes some people to go out and look for it. Or if people are missing because they've been attacked by vampires, he'll like go out and look for them. So he's just really portrayed as this like genuine, like really earnest guy who obviously is you know very burdened by the patriarchy and that he's. He doesn't know how to express his emotion, but like he feels a lot of emotion and he's finally got the chance to reconnect with his daughter and he's, you know, he's he's kind of just repeating all of the tropes of like small town dad, you know, goes to work, comes home, drinks beer, puts on the game, uh, doesn't, you know, isn't very communicative, um, but 
you know, he's he's trying his darndest to connect with his daughter and like be a, a good dad. And it's just I think it's just really sweet how they portray his character. Like he has a lot of depth, um, even though he's yeah, he just he has a lot of depth, though. I, I quite enjoy his masculinity. Um, but rewatching this, I remember when I first watched the films, I was like I was kind of like Team Jacob for a while. And, uh, but rewatching them now, I'm like, holy shit, actually, like, what Jacob is doing is so awful. <laughs> like, it's, yes. like, really, really quite toxic. Um, so, I mean, first of all, yeah, we're made to feel super bad for him. I, I remember the scene, like, when he, uh, when, uh, Edward calls the house and he's like, oh, uh, you know, he's not here right now. He's arranging a funeral um, so he basically just made Edward believe that Bella was dead and then Edward's going to kill himself. Um, and then Bella's like, oh my goodness, I have to go and tell him that I'm still alive so he doesn't kill himself. And there's like this heartbreaking scene where we're supposed to just feel crushed for Jake. And I always did feel crushed for him because he's like, please, Bella, like stay here with me because like they were just starting to get close or whatever. Um, and she's like, goodbye, Jacob. Be like, you know, like I have to go kind of thing. Um, but if you think about it, it's just like, okay, so you just lied to someone on the phone and now they're going to kill themselves. And then this other person is like, no, I better go stop that from happening. And you're like, no, please don't. <laughs> Please just yeah, let. I mean, that that's that's the behavior of of an abuser. Like that's right. like that's gaslighting multiple people. That is, yes, not that is not good. Well, yeah. and just the way that he constantly, um, she tells him no over and over again that she's in love with Bella, and he constantly um, pushes and pushes. And then there's the one scene where he kisses her, like no consent whatsoever. Yes, um, and then is like surprised when she punches him and yeah yeah so i it's it's funny i think i mexi i i uh sent you a voice note that the, the first when i first was watching uh these movies years ago i was 100 team edward and then i was re-watching them and i think i was maybe on the second movie when i had sent that to you mex where i was like i think i'm team jacob now and then as more of the movies went on, I was like, eh, like more like because he does start off as this like really sweet, laid back, just like genuine character. And then he goes through this transformation with the werewolf. And I mean, but there is something really uh, like that does make you feel for him that he is just like so desperate and so genuinely in love with her. And he's like still a young kid trying to figure out all of his hormones and emotions out. But yeah, it's just deeply toxic behavior that he's engaging in. But Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I used to be very team Jacob because like like I said, like I've been Jacob like at different points in my life. So I'm like, and I think we're, as women, we're also really socialized to feel like, oh, like if a man is, is really expressing his emotions and like really genuine and stuff, then like he deserves to be like rewarded for that. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's kind of like, oh, poor him. Like he really cares, but like he, it's just not enough to get the girl kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just watching it again, I, I was just like, wow, damn. Yeah. He like oversteps her boundaries, like every step of the way. And then, and it's really awkward. Like, you know, I've also been Bella in that kind of like a relationship framework where it's just like, listen, like, I really want to be your friend, but like, you're making it so uncomfortable for me all the time. And like, you keep bringing this up and you're like, you're making me feel like I'm guilty when really like I've told you this whole time, you know, I mean, I do think that like Bella like is obviously like using him and like, 
and and kind of like knows what she's doing but at the same time like uh, yeah it's just kind of toxic all around but yeah <laughs> anyway yeah i think too um going to if if i could switch to edward too his masculinity i think is really interesting on the one here on the one hand he's like this really you know like mysterious and brooding jealous overprotective uh you know, boyfriend who tries to control who she can see. Um, There's definitely, we talked about watching her sleep, the, you know, following her every move. There's obviously very toxic, uh, you know, behavior there. But I also think there's something like he's also portrayed as, well, a quote unquote vegetarian, you know, whatever that means (laughs) in this context. But, um, you know, he's this intuitive mind reader. He has glittery skin. So he also has sort of like also this other feminine, I guess, side, like he's sweet and kind and chivalrous and even like very charmingly insecure. And I don't know, I think that might be what makes Edward so interesting. He's like devastatingly tortured by his vampiric blood-sucking nature he really hates who he is and he's forced to wear this like mask and hide who he is from the rest of the world um and he's really afraid that if bella knows who he is she'll you know hate him and i just read this is like super relatable for everybody that we're all like kind of wearing a mask to some extent like to some extent hiding parts of ourselves from the public and even our friends that we're ashamed of or embarrassed about but even more relatable to like met like i'm not a man but to, to to men who you know are supposed to put on this facade of always being in control and super tough and strong and having it together you know when in reality they're dying inside and i just thought edward like had like a really interesting um like duality in that sense yeah i completely agree those are like all really great points And, like, yeah, I mean, it is very patriarchal, like, his whole we can't sleep together or whatever. Um, But I think a lot of that, I think part of that is insecurity. Um, And then, like, part of that is kind of also against the stereotype of, like, the young teenage boy who, like, all he wants to do is have sex with everyone, not catch feelings for them. You know what I mean? And, like, how it's sleep with women and don't have feelings for him and then this is like the complete opposite and even though it's still like problematic it's like yeah there is always like that duality there right i definitely i definitely agree and i definitely think that we see kind of two straining masculinities with edward and jacob and then i'll get into charlie dreamy perfect but mustache and and nearly without flaw i love charlie (laughs) 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 <laughs> but but I'll start I'll start with Jacob because with Jacob like in I really like Jacob's character in the first movie, right? Because like you know it's clear from their first interaction that he's kind of got feelings for Bella, but he's also like a dork, you know, and like he's he's kind of scrawny and he's got long hair and he doesn't really know what he's doing, and like um, at, at the at the end of the movie he's he's just like he's just like hey I'm just a messenger I'm just passing on this note. Uh, from my family to yours and just whatever things are cool bye you know and he's just and like that's chill but then like you know as, as he becomes the wolf right as he as he enters into this world where all that matters for him is his relationship with dominance and being the alpha male he enters into a space where he can no longer approach bella with honesty and he can only approach bella with that same uh dominance that he has to approach the rest of the world Right. Like like we have we have this faulty or faulty and false wolf pack dynamic. Right. Based on bad research and bad mythology where wolves are led by an alpha male 
when in reality it's complicated networks of family relations, usually led by the oldest grandpa and grandma werewolf, and then everybody else following behind. And like, so so we have we have this broken idea of what masculinity is and how masculinity functions, and this idea that if you want to have any power, you need to be able to defeat the toughest guy in the room. And it doesn't matter for Jacob that the power is leadership. For him, it just means the ability to not have to lead. But nevertheless, like his entire life becomes defined by his ability to be an alpha male and, and to do that alpha male mindset. You know, we, we, we get that we get that scene where he's like, like, I am the son of a chief and I'm strong and awesome. And like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's meant to be uplifting, but he's in just in that ins- terrible wolf voice. Yeah, I love, okay. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I love the wolf voice. It's so cheesy. <laughs> but like, but like, it's this, it, it's, it's meant to be his asserting his, his lineage, his heritage, his history, and realizing that he doesn't have to, to listen. And there's part of that that's really good because what he's disobeying in that moment is the the murder of all of his friends and the person he has feelings for and uh, who would go on to, to become a psychic fetus he's in love with. But um, but like but like it's still complicated because at the end of the day, like it's only uh, relational to his status as the quote unquote alpha male. Right. Like Jacob is amogging all the time. Alpha male of the group. He is absolutely reading <laughs> werewolf mindset. <laughs> And like, like that—that <laughs> that is the guy we're given. That is the guy he becomes, and we see this tragic fall of a man who's at, who's at the cusp of his own masculinity, and then he falls into this pit, the death trap that is that alpha male fucking nonsense, right? And then I think all of those protein shakes with his wolf bros <laughs> just—I I think you're right. I think you're right. Thank you. <laughs> and with although although oh, although please. I I. I've, I gotta say this, I cannot believe that on this podcast I am having to listen to pro-cop propaganda. Oh, <laughs> I, <laughs> you did, like, I'm, I'm, about to, I'm about to drive the discourse car straight into Funtown, if you wouldn't mind hopping in. <laughs> this is the dumbest thing I've ever said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, I'm still recovering that. from this cold, so I'm, I'm existing under like a heavy fog right now, so I, I have no liability <laughs> for what I say. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, right, yeah, let's, we should, let's head into Funtown. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, we should definitely <laughs> talk about, about, about Charlie, I think, because Charlie, for me, is the key to reading the masculinity in this film. Right, because, you know, um, I didn't get too much into Edward, but Edward exists in a very same space that Jacob does. Edward isn't so much kind of falling into that trap of being the alpha male kind of guy, but he is falling into the kind of history of patriarchy, right? He's not concerned with kind of this new modality where it's all about being tough and the alpha male and super strong, but he is nevertheless unable to escape the historical weight of patriarchy and what that means for his relationship with Bella, Right, he's the one who's constantly like, "No, we have to get married. I can't turn you into a vampire. I can't listen to you. I can't do the things you want to do, because because my my relationship to my gender says they're bad." But let's 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 move over to Charlie. Let's move over to to a a can of Rainier, a shotgun, and a mustache. But like, <laughs> I love Charlie because it's like it's like looking into like a haunted mirror where I see a future I could have had. And it's it's just so tragically beautiful, but like I think Charlie's masculinity is really interesting because like you, uh, I think um, Maxi, you brought these points up and they were absolutely correct. 
but Charlie is very soft. He is 100% soft boy energy. He, he has so many feelings, right? He, he desperately wants to connect with his daughter, right? Like, I cannot hold back the tears when we get that scene in the first movie where he's like i can't watch it me either i can't watch it oh no there's two there's two scenes there's two scenes in the first movie i guess but but the first one is where he's like hey like i got i got some purple sheets for your room because the lady at the sheet store said purple (laughs) was a good choice and bella's like yeah whatever dad you know and like and he's and like that is him trying 110 percent to build a bridge back to his daughter that's been alienated that's him putting himself out there emotionally trying to do emotional work as a cisgendered heterosexual man in defiance of the world her like pictures from when she was a kid all over the room Mm -hmm. yeah and like like he's trying so hard but he he can't he's having trouble coming to terms with the fact that like bella's going through a lot in, in her own world he can't quite comprehend that because she's a teen and teens are very tumultuous Right. And, and like, so, yeah. so he's, he's having trouble thinking about Bella not being his little like five-year-old girl anymore. Mm. <clears throat> and then like, yeah. um, uh, of course we have the scene later on where like, uh, in order to stop, I have to skip it. Me too. Yeah, I have it, to it's skip an it intense, too. intense scene. Uh, but so, yeah. uh, basically at this point in the first movie, um, Bella is being hunted by, uh, the, the most powerful hunter vampire that ever existed. And in order, <laughs> in order to save her dad, she she has to come up with a ruse for why she has to flee, right? Uh, in order to to take the trail away from from him, otherwise he'll get hurt. And instead of doing anything reasonable, she's just like, "I have to leave you for the same reason mom left you, and that's because you suck, and this place is a dead end hellhole." And like, it is just so gutting because this entire movie has been nothing but Charlie trying to find his emotional space in a world that forbids men from having anything besides the alpha male energy that Jacob will later be possessed by, possessed by rather than possessed of. And I think um, we can kind of tie this sort of into Charlie as a cop. Because really, I think um, there are three cop things that Charlie does. Uh, he, he's got the, the, there's that amazing scene where he's, he's sitting at a table that has like 400 empty cans of Rainier. And he's, he like, yeah. he like, uh, he closes the breach on his shotgun and he's like, all right, bring your boyfriend in. And I'm just like, yes, oh, yes. yeah, I love that scene. Like that, that's very masculine. That's very cop. Right. And then, and then you've got him doing like ambiguous investigative work when he's like, oh, we think there's an animal and I have to go talk with this man about finding this animal. And in like, those aren't really cop things, you know, they're coded. He's a cop, so they are de facto things that a cop is doing in this movie. But when we think about cops from a left perspective, we have the same kind of situation we have with Charlie that we have with uh, the cop from Chud. That, yes, this is copaganda. Yes, this is uh, working to reclaim the identity of a cop as someone who's just not going around protecting property and abusing people. But nevertheless, like, Charlie doesn't do any of those things. Charlie Charlie represents that same kind of anxiety we see with the cop from Chud, where where you've got a, a group of people who know what cops do and to and know that if if cops are about, their lives are at risk. And then you've got a, a group of people who think of cops as Andy Griffith from Mayberry, right? They're just they're just going around having light adventures, and maybe they'll bring the town drunk in to shake it off over the night. And and that's the kind of space that charlie exists within and i think that makes him a really useful kind of discursive object as a character to kind of talk about cops propaganda and the relationship to broader society masculinity and the left right we 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 don't 
just consign Charlie to being bad because he's a cop. We go like, okay, this is why Charlie is depicted in this way. This is the tension that that has with cops in the real world and what their real function is, right? This is the the inherent lie of the Andy Griffith Mayberry cop, that they're just kind of going around uh, rescuing kittens from trees or something. They, they have a much darker purpose. And why Charlie isn't representing that is is really, really useful to point out to people, especially in like, I don't know, for lack of better parlance, a text so popular with normies and people who aren't on the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of, yeah, part of that is like, you know, he's portrayed as being like best friends with all the indigenous people, which is like record scratch. You know, that's like not that's not something that that would occur. You know, um, so yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important that Ash uh, points out he doesn't do the things cops do. Yes, absolutely. Um, but but the fact that he is a cop is is just the latest in a long iteration of cultural products which are marketed exclusively towards uh, young people, which is designed to present the, the police as something other than what they are, which is a clear and ever-present threat. Like, if you, if you live in Forks, you should not be calling Charlie if, you know, one of your neighbors is in the middle of a psychotic break. That's not what you should be doing. You shouldn't be doing that. You should not, never be calling the police. And we find out that cops are both super cuddly and very emotional and very, and you know, just trying to be a good dad, but also completely useless when you're confronted with the threats that you actually have to face. You know, there's very little that he, he, that he can actually do. There's very little that the powers of kind of like uh, law enforcement have got that. So uh, that, that's something that I find interesting, that this is also another one uh, in a long line of horror films that basically presents law enforcement officers as both benign and useless. And I think it's, I think it's very dangerous, actually, to accept that unquestioningly. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's, it is very upsetting to me that he is a cop because I like his character so much. Um, and, I, and I know that that is, yeah, complete, like, copaganda, as you say um so yeah it's it is unfortunate um and it's very clear that this was written by like uh you know a, a normie that thinks of cops that way and has never had reason to not think of them that way <laughs> one one final point uh to, to kind of say about edward which was like yeah he doesn't fit in with the stereotype of of like you know the atypical uh horny teenage male but like the one stereotype that he really does fit in and kind of perpetuate is that of the deeply religious conservative yes like that's that's exactly where all of this comes from and it's and it's and it's not only held up as something um like um uh, you know neutral it's held up as something like like no this is who you should want you should want because he's not like he isn't he isn't like jacob he's not the one reading wolfpack mindset he isn't the one <laughs> like just constantly doing lifts he's he's the good one who really cares about you but he's also deeply controlling and it's because in the kind of like we can get onto this later but in the kind of like theology of twilight very loosely construed it's because he thinks of himself as superior all right thank you everyone for tuning into this part one of the twilight super show be sure to check out part two which is up on the horror vanguard podcast in that episode we talk more about 
neoliberalism, colonialism, political economy, etc., and animal rights also. <laughs> Be sure also to check out and subscribe to the Horror Vanguard and also to Leslie's channel, Mad Blender. All of the links are in the description box below. And we hope you've enjoyed this Valentine's Day special. We will see you next time. Bye.